You're listening to the podcast of The Branch in Ashland, Virginia. We all need encouragement, especially when we face challenges and difficulties. Where do we go when we feel discouraged? Jesus' disciple, Peter, wrote letters to the early church to encourage them. Peter had been discouraged before, and he encouraged the early church by reminding them who they were and what had been done and given to them. When we face difficulties, sometimes we just need a little perspective to remind us that things will be okay. I had one of those days this week where, you know, it wasn't one bad thing. It was just like a lot of annoying things that all add up to feel like it's like one bad thing. And then it's like something stupid and silly happens and it adds insult to injury and you just feel like your world is falling apart and you get to be like melodramatic, like a preteen girl right now. Just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> I knew I'd get a response from that at least. No, I just, I, it was one of those days and, and, you know, it's when you need a reality check and you need to realize that like things are not nearly as, as significant as you thought they were. And so the next day, I actually talked to two friends, and as I heard about their experiences um, and some of the things that uh, were going on in their life, I realized, I, I think I, I started feeling in myself like, gosh, I'm so stupid and selfish. Um, and I also realized that the things that I was going through, the, the things that seemed so significant in that moment were fairly insignificant, um, and they weren't nearly as big as I had made them. Um, and I think when we, when we have those moments in life, which I think I'm not alone, that all of us have those moments, we need perspective. We need to remind ourselves again that um, things may be not as bad as we thought they were. Um, maybe there's somebody out there who's got it worse. And we need to remember, you know, for us as followers of Christ, remembering the promises of God in those moments. That um, those are, are kind of uh, over all things uh, and that we just need to take a step back and remind ourselves of those things. Jesus' disciple Peter, who lived in the aftermath of, of Jesus' arrest and his death and his resurrection, he was there in these crucial moments of Jesus' life. He was there for the trial. And if we know the story, we know what he did. He kind of lurked in the shadows there. He was there for the crucifixion. He was there to witness the empty tomb. And then he, he was there and experienced the commissioning of, of the body of Christ in, in the church. And then also witnessed how, how the church began to expand in those early years as the church went into the world. But Peter was also the one who, who showed his humanity the most, I think. He was the one who, who probably had days like I had the other day and started feeling sorry for himself. And then he realized, wait, like things could be way worse than they are. And in fact, even in the midst of those difficult things, we need to be reminded of that. And I wonder if that's what caused him to write these two letters that we have in the Bible to the early church to encourage them because the early church was going through some stuff. 
They were going through difficult things and they needed encouragement. They needed perspective. They needed reminders of all that God had said to them and all that God had promised to them. And here we sit nearly 2,000 years later, some of us needing that same encouragement, needing some of the the same uh, reminders and perspective that Peter gave to that early church. And we're going to be kicking off today, uh, looking over the next couple weeks at Peter's first letter to the early church. First Peter, and so if you have a Bible, you can join with me in looking at First Peter chapter 1. We're going to read the whole thing. It's not, it sounds longer than it is, but, um, and again, I think reminding ourselves in these that most of the times um, when in the early church, when they read this, they read the whole thing, not just chapter 1, because there was no chapter 1 or whatever. It was the whole letter together. And so we're just going to take a chunk of it this morning and read it. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ. And sprinkled with His blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a Father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. 
Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. If I were to sum up all those 25 verses, this is what Peter says to us. He says, we're elect or chosen. We're exiled strangers called by the triune God to be holy through an enduring and imperishable salvation. So taking that phrase, like let's look at each one of those little sections. First of all, this idea that we're elect or exiled strangers. You know, most of us probably, if we're living here in the United States, don't necessarily feel like that. The people that Peter was writing to, they were ones who were on the margin. They were ones who were not necessarily feeling at home in the dominant culture back then. Where Peter was writing them, they they were looked at differently because their religion was different. They were looked at different because some of them were were Jews, um, some of them were Greeks, but yet not adhering to certain Greek culture. And so, for those of us who mostly are living in the dominant culture here in the United States, it may be hard for us to kind of wrap our heads around this idea of of being foreigners, being exiled strangers in this world. All, all All it took for me to realize this was to go outside of the United States to finally begin to understand what that felt like. But Peter is telling them that this is who they are. They, they're cast aside, but here's the thing. If they're cast aside, if they're marginalized, they may feel that way from everybody else, but God has chosen them despite that. That regardless of whether or not they were cast aside by the dominant culture, regardless of whether they felt like they fit in or not, Peter's reminding them that whether you feel like you're part of this or not, God's chosen you. You're his elect is the word that, that's translated sometimes. But you're chosen by God to be his people. You know, that should be something that gives us confidence. It should be something that, that in that reminder, it, it kind of boosts our character and our demeanor. It gives us perspective again. That regardless of how we're received or seen by other people, the God of the universe who put all this together sees us and chooses us to be part of his family. And Peter's reminding us that we're in good company too. He was reminding his readers of that. And he talked about the prophets who had come before Whenever we do communion here and come to the Lord's table, I I remind us of those words from Isaiah 53 that were prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus actually came and reminded the Jewish people that in being cast out, in being on the margins, they were in good company because the one who would come to be their Savior was also in that same boat. He was also cast aside. He was a man of no reputation. He wasn't accepted. 
And He came to call others out to be part of His kingdom, a kingdom that was not of this world. <clears throat> the challenge for us as believers and followers of Jesus Christ is that we can't too easily be acclimated to this world around us. We always have to remind ourselves that we're strangers. That we're exiled in a world that we're not completely a part of. And we can easily forget that. And we can easily forget too that Jesus accepts us despite that. That even if we feel like we're outsiders, we're strangers, He still accepts us. In, in this world, lots of people will say, well, we don't want to associate you because you're associated with Jesus. And one of the age-old questions I think that Christians ask themselves, followers of Christ ask ourselves, how do I live in this world and not become of this world? How do I continue to live in such a way that I acknowledge that I'm not really a part of things, but yet um, I'm also living here and not sequestering myself from it? How do I continue to pursue a relationship and, and, and this journey of following after Jesus, even living as a stranger in this place? And so, this idea of, of being elect, exiled strangers, and also being called by the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, every time we, we finish a service here at the branch, I always remind us that when we go out, we don't go out empty-handed, we don't go out with gifts, but we go out what? We go out with the authority of God the Father, we go out with the power of God the Holy Spirit, and we go out in the name of God the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. There's power in the three persons of the Trinity. That word Trinity, it's never mentioned in the Bible, but multiple times we see reference to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> you know, Peter experienced Jesus firsthand. He walked with Him. He ate with Him. He rested with Him. They, they all tracked together. And Peter is telling his readers that, hey, like you believe even though you didn't have the privilege that I had of actually seeing it, of actually seeing Jesus there. But in the midst of it, in the difficulties and the trials that these early Christians faced, Peter's reminding them that Jesus, when He was here on earth, He went through similar difficulties. You know, in a couple of weeks when we celebrate Holy Week and we celebrate Easter, we're reminded of those days, that, that 24-hour period from the garden where Jesus was praying and then was arrested and then tried and, and beaten and scorned and stripped and hung on a cross. You see, we have a God who, who doesn't sit there from afar and say, oh, you'll be okay in your troubles. You'll be okay in your trials and your difficulties. He actually entered into that space and went through that for us. <clears throat> and we're reminded of that. As the writer of the Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 4.15, for we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. 
Jesus went through some of the most awful torture that any of us could even imagine. And so when we find ourselves in in pain and struggles, when we find ourselves having a bad day or having difficulties, we remember that, that God doesn't just sit there from afar and say, you'll be okay, but He actually joined us in that. You see, Jesus joins us in our pain, in our grief, in our trials, in our struggles. And He doesn't say, it'll be okay, you'll get over it, you'll get through it, this will pass. He just joins us there and says, I've been there, let me be present with you in that. And Peter's trying to give the people hope. Because when we're in despair, that's what we need. That's what these people needed. They were like, they're probably asking themselves, like, why did we follow Jesus? It, w- it would have been so much easier had we not done this. Dennis Edwards, who actually was a seminary professor of mine and wrote a commentary on, on the book of 1 Peter, he said this, Jesus is the foundation of Christian hope. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead and is alive, Christian hope can be described as a living hope. Such hope is in contrast to pagan religions, which are dead exercises in futility. <clears throat> you know, any place else that we will go to find hope, I, I love that last phrase, dead exercises in futility. You know, we may think that the places where we're putting our hope are actually alive and that they, they're possible that we actually might get some hope from them but if it's not if our hope isn't founded and grounded in the foundation of jesus christ then everything else is a dead exercise in futility we won't be given that same hope that same living hope if not through jesus where is it that we're putting our hope are we putting our hope in our status and our jobs and our school in our grades, in the money we make, we're saying, well, here's what I'm hoping for. I'm not saying any of those things are bad. Hey, it's good for us to pursue those things. But is that where all of our hope rests? Because those things are dead exercises in futility when it comes to hope. But when it comes to true living hope, Jesus is the only place that we can find it. Why? Because it doesn't leave. It's forever. It's eternal. It's not temporary. It's not fleeting. Peter's quick to point that out multiple times throughout this chapter. He tells the people that what's been given to you in this hope and this salvation is eternal. It won't spoil. It won't fade. It can't be burned away. But it will last far beyond silver and gold and other things where we put, might put our hope and our faith. And then Peter reminds them that because of this, because you've been chosen, because you're elect, because you're called by a, a triune God, that we're called also to be holy. And so with confidence and hope, even in our trials and difficulty, Peter reminds us of what we're called into to be set apart. And as he wrote, be holy as I am holy. Peter's quoting from the Old Testament where God said that to His people. As followers of Christ, 
people who claim that, that Jesus is our eternal and living hope, we're to be distinct. Now, Christians don't always do that well. Sometimes we're distinct in the worst possible ways. Like we like to boycott things, or um, we like to put weird bumper stickers on our car, or fish, or whatever, and whatever. And again, I'm not throwing shade. If you like the fish, it's okay. But, but some people know us for all the wrong things who we vote for. But are we known by God because of our pursuit of holiness? Because we take what He said, be holy as I am holy, and say, hey, I want to do that. And when we hear the word holy, probably some of us have even ourselves used that word as as not necessarily a good thing. We've looked at someone and be like, oh, aren't you a holier than thou, right? And what does that mean, though? Jerry Bridges, who wrote a book called The Pursuit of Holiness, he says this, he's called us to be like himself. God has called us to be like himself. Holiness is nothing less than conformity to the character of God. Again, I like that simple definition of what holiness is. We spent a few weeks uh, looking through this idea of becoming more like Christ, shaped and transformed to be who he's called us to be and Christ's deformity. As we pursue holiness, we're not doing that so that we can be like, Haha, I'm better than you. No, we're saying I'm pursuing this, conf- to this becoming conformed to the character of God. We don't conform to the world, we conform to God. And, and for some of us, and for some people that we encounter regularly, we might say, well, I'm not going to conform to God. I'm not going to conform to anything. Here, here's the here's secret about nonconformity. At some point, you conform to something. Even if you're nonconforming, you're conforming. Because when a bunch of nonconformists come together, they're still conforming together. <clears throat> so we may trick ourselves. Others may tell themselves that we're not conforming to anything, but really we are. If we just look at ourselves, look at our lives and ask ourselves, what is it that I'm really conforming to? We will conform to something even if we don't want to. It's a question of what or who we'll conform to. Wherever we're putting our most energy, wherever expending our most resources, spending our much as much time, that's the thing that we'll find ourselves conforming to. You know, the Greek word here is hagias, which just means set apart for God to be, as it were, exclusively His. You know, we, we look at jealousy often and we think, well, it's not good for us to be jealous. And yet, we, we know through Scripture that, that God is a jealous God. He, he doesn't want us to have a divided heart. He wants us to be in pursuit of Him. And God gives us the power to do that, to live in such a way that we can do that. We can easily have a divided heart. Good things can pull us away from our conforming to Christ. Our families can do it. Our jobs can do it. Things that aren't bad in and of themselves. But when they take a higher priority for us, then then conforming to the image of God, that's when we need to ask ourselves, what are we doing here? God gives us the power to do this, and He has with generations before. In Ezekiel chapter 36, 
the words that God spoke through his prophet Ezekiel. For I will take you out of the nations. I'll gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. We're able to follow the decrees of God. We're able to pursue holiness, not because we can like pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and say, hey, I'm good enough and smart enough and gosh darn it, I can make this happen. No, we can do this because we've been given a new heart, because we've been given a new spirit, and it's God's spirit within us that enables us to do that. When we know that last part of that phrase is summing up this whole chapter is through an enduring and imperishable salvation. Something that will last. You know, if we truly commit to this and pursue it, it can't be taken away from us. It's protected. You know, in recent weeks, if we read the news at all and follow stuff within culture, there's been banks that have, have fallen and people have, have wondered like, oh no, what's going to go, what's happening here? If you watch the stock market, it always goes up and down with things like this. There's no stability in that. It feels very tenuous at times. When we think about like guarantees for people, And when we guarantee something, um, how good is that guarantee? It's about as good as, you know, the paper that it's written on sometimes. It's as good as the person who actually made it to us. But for those of us who are followers of Christ, as people of the word and promise, God's people knew that every covenant was sealed with blood. This isn't something that we see happen very often, if at all, today. In fact, if we did, people would probably claim it was unsanitary or they would have us arrested if every time we came into an agreement, we did what they did in the Old Testament. Because a covenant, an agreement, a contract that was entered into by two people together needed to be sealed in blood. In fact, this idea of a covenant, if you go back to the Hebrew language, they would, the literal translation was that they would cut a covenant. Because what would happen anytime two people came together and said, hey, we agree to this, we're making a covenant, they would cut an animal in half and they would lay it and they would walk between it. It sounds gruesome, right? And yet what they were saying when they, when they walked through that dead animal with the shed blood all over there was, may what happened to this animal happen to us if we break this covenant. And all the blood that we hear about when we think about the crucifixion, that's the blood that Jesus walked through to remind us of the fact that this gift, the salvation that was given to us can't be taken away. Because He promised in the name, in His own name. He made a covenant. And it's a living hope that we have in that. You know, I I know for myself, I can often project my own weaknesses onto everybody else around me. 
And so like if I lack trust, if I'm really honest, I mean I say it all the time, criticism is autobiographical and that if I am really, really honest and if I don't trust you, chances are it's probably because I don't trust me. That if I'm honest and look in the mirror, that um, I, I may be projecting onto you what I'm seeing in myself. And I think we do that oftentimes, even when it comes to promises. That we say, well, you know, that person's not going to keep their promise. Well, would you keep your promise? Are you a person of your word? When you make a, a contract, when you sign a contract, do you say, hey, nothing's going to keep me from doing this, from following this out? Most contracts and covenants are only as enduring as the one who makes them. And if we or others make them, we may see them as faulty and imperfect, but if God makes a contract or a covenant, if He makes a promise, we should see it as perfect and imperishable, without fault. Sealed with blood, knowing that what He said was, this is going to last far beyond any other promise or covenant or contract that you might ever have. And for the people who are hearing this for the first time, and for us thousands of years later, that should be encouragement to us. That God's promises are sealed with blood, the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. It's like that old Stevie Wonder song, signed, sealed, and delivered. It's ours. We're given this living hope in the midst of exercises in futility and and following after, chasing after other things, exercises in futility. And so if we remind ourselves of these things that we're chosen, exiled strangers, we're called by God to be holy through an enduring and imperishable salvation. Not three things to remember, just this important truth to remember. Hey, when we're having rough days, when we're lacking hope, when we're feeling despair, remember who we are. That's what Peter was reminding the people of God. Hey, I'm not trying to diminish. Peter wasn't trying to diminish difficulties and trials, grief and hardships. But he was saying, keep some perspective in that. And remind yourself that you, even if other people Cast you aside, you're still chosen. And being exiled strangers is part of who you are. But God has called you. God has chosen you to be among His people, to be holy, and that the promises that He's made to us cannot be taken away. The hope that we have is a living hope that we can live into because He's given us a new heart. He's given us a new spirit. And we pursue that in Him. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful for Your promises. We are grateful for Your covenant to us. I pray that You would just remind us over and over again. God, even if if we need to write this down, even if we need to tape it to our mirrors, tape it to our dashboards, tape it to our computers, whatever. That God, You've chosen us. You've called us to be 
a part of, of your church, your family, your body. You've empowered us. You've strengthened us. You've given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, God, that we would pursue holiness. Not so we could thumb our noses at other people, but so that we can pursue the call that you've put on our lives. To be set apart, to be different, to be holy, and to be conformed to the image of God. So Father, teach us more and more every day what that looks like, what that means. Help us in our pursuit of holiness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are elect or chosen, exiled strangers called by the triune God to be holy through an enduring and imperishable salvation. Regardless of where we find ourselves, that's who we are. When we face challenges and difficulties, trials and struggles, may we find courage and confidence and gain perspective in what God has done for us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at thebranchashland at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, give us a review, and share with your friends and family. Thanks for listening. See you next time.